Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another new episode of New Books in Islamic Studies, which is part of the New Books Network. Thank you for joining us today, and I hope you are staying well and safe wherever you are. In each new episode of New Books in Islamic Studies, we are joined by an author who has published a book that is relevant to the field of Islamic studies as it is broadly defined, and we have a conversation with the author. Here, There, and Elsewhere, The Making of Immigrant Identities in a Globalized World, which is published by Stanford University Press in 2020, is a book by Professor Tassine Shams, who is an assistant professor of sociology at the University of Toronto in Canada. The book reconceptualizes the homeland-hostland dyad using experiences of diasporic South Asian Muslim communities in America, namely uh, Bangladeshis, Pakistanis, and Indians. Shams introduces an innovative conceptual notion of elsewhere, which informs her new multi-centered approach to the study of globalized immigrant identities. Using ethnographic study, social media analysis, and also autoethnographic reflections, she provocatively highlights how, for her varied participants, their identities as South Asian Muslim Americans were not only informed by their perception of sending and receiving countries or even their relationship to these places, but was also defined by societies beyond these nation states especially those that informed their umatic connection or informed their sense of being part of the global Muslim world, such as countries in the Middle East. In such instances, affinities to elsewhere informed South Asian Muslims' political and social mobilizations, and this was evident in her research during the American presidential elections of 2016 um, and in other instances of conversations around Palestinian uh, plight and ideas of divestment. Still, other elsewhere events, such as ISIS attacks in European countries, such as in Paris or in Germany, also further altered their experiences as Muslims in America, despite not having any affinity or connection to Europe. The introduction of a conceptual paradigm of elsewhere in this study productively unsettles homeland-hostland dynamics as simple and a binary one and further challenges us to rethink how homeland politics, global Muslim events, and hostland reception dynamics complicate diasporic identity formation in a globalized and transnational context. This book will be of interest to those who work on international migration, diaspora study, South Asian Islam, and Islam in America, and will also be great teaching resources and courses that deal with any of these issues. In our conversations today, um, Professor Shams and I spoke about some of the methodological approaches that she took to completing this book, some of the challenges she had in doing her ethnographic study, and we also talked through some of the varied examples of elsewhere that she conceptualizes in her book. So without further ado, um, here's my conversation with Professor Tessine Shams about her new book, Here, There, and Elsewhere, The Making of Immigrant Identities in a Globalized World. 
Hi, Tassine. Thank you so much for joining us today to have a conversation about your new book, Here, There, and Elsewhere, The Making of Immigrant Identities in a Globalized World. How are you doing? Hi, Shobhana. Uh, thank you so much for giving me this opportunity to engage with you about the book. I'm doing great. Um, I'm excited. I'm looking forward to your questions. How about you? Um, I'm okay, I think. Yeah, I'm just going into week two of um, online teaching. So I think I'm getting figuring out the rhythm, as I'm sure you are, as well as the University of Toronto. Um, we have a tradition in New Books in Islamic Studies where we like to start our conversation with asking our authors to share something about their intellectual journey and what really brought them to writing this particular book. Wow, that's a great way to start because I do think that this book is rooted in my personal story as much as it is rooted in my curiosity as a migration scholar. Uh, to give some background about who I am to begin with, I am a first-generation Bangladeshi immigrant. I arrived in the United States with my family, uh, my parents and younger brother when I was a teenager, but my first introduction to the United States was in Mississippi, specifically Hattiesburg, a small, predominantly white and conservative college town. My parents still live there, and I try as much as I can during semester breaks to go and visit my parents. So I was doing that while I was a grad student at UCLA. Um, it was a very rough you know, semester, I think my first or second year of undergrad, sorry, uh, grad school. And um, I was at my parents in Hattiesburg when the 2015 Charlie Hebdo attacks took place in Paris. To give some background about what it's like living in Hattiesburg in the first place, I did my undergrad there and I was almost always the only non-white, non-black person in any classroom I entered. It was isolating, but at the same time, I think it was great for a budding sociologist because I felt like I had a different point of view from the sidelines than those who were um, in the field playing the game, so to speak. So when that uh, shocking event of the Charlie Hebdo attack uh, in 2015 took place, I, I put on my sociologist's hat. And as I saw my parents being glued to the TV, watching the live coverage, I saw how fearful they were. They were horrified by the event, but they also feared a backlash uh, similar to 9-11 in their small college town. And they called the handful of other Bangladeshi Muslims that they knew in the area and learned that their friends too were fearing a backlash. One of their friends is a hijabi uh, woman who, uh, was, who was studying to become a doctor, but she was frightened to go to the local library the next day to study because she didn't know how people would perceive her headscarf in that context. And the most interesting thing in this personal uh, observation is that later that year, when ISIS attacked the Bataclan, I was back in Los Angeles studying South Asian Muslim communities. But despite the significantly more cosmopolitan milieu in Los Angeles, I saw that the South Asian Muslims there as well feared an Islamophobic backlash. 
and there too the common frame of reference among everyone was 9-11 as if the Bataclan and the Charlie Hebdo attacks did not happen far away in France but in the United States. Uh, that observation really opened up uh, this entire idea of the book because they couldn't find um, anything in the international migration literature that helped me make sense of these observations. Yes, immigrants have various global connections that transcend homeland hosts and borders, but how do these places beyond the homeland and hostland also shape immigrants' identities? I could not find an answer to this question in the assimilation literature, for instance, because it looked largely at how hostland contexts shaped immigrants' homeland identities over time. Transnationalism largely looked at um, what happened in the homeland and hostland. So the focus ex was expanded beyond the hostland, but was still uh, tied within the dyadic homeland hostland paradigm. And Diaspora looked at how members of a dispersed population were linked to a common homeland, but to each other, but largely overlooked the hostland context. So my reading of the international migration literature was that it was largely focused on only the sending and receiving countries, not looking at how places beyond also matter to immigrants' worldviews, day-to-day interactions. So that was what set me off uh, in my path to writing this book, looking at how places beyond the homeland and hostland, but also re related to the sending and receiving countries, also shaped immigrants' identities. And I think that nicely really sets us up for the conversation that we're going to have. Um, the, the two pillars, both your personal narrative and how that is woven in so beautifully with kind of the, the ethnographic work that you've done in the book and also the conceptual intervention that you're making in the book. So I wonder if we could start first with the, you know, the um, as you kind of alluded to, the the multi-centered approach that you're providing for um, the readers and how you're um, uh, shifting away from just talking about the hostland, um, homeland dyad and including this idea of an elsewhere. So can you walk us through what this idea of the elsewhere is and, um, and you know, what are the particulars of it? And I'm sure subsequent conversations will help us unpack it a little bit more with the ethnographic detail you provide in the book. Of course. I conceptualize elsewhere as a place that is beyond the immigrant's homeland and hostland. So it is not a place where the immigrants have originated, and it's not a place where immigrants have uh, immigrants now live. In all, uh, in every sense of the word, it is a place that immigrants have only vague ideas about, have never uh, traveled to, have no really meaningful connection based on a sense of diasporic affinity. It could be just anywhere in the world. But that uh, faraway foreign place becomes meaningful to the immigrants based on the interactions at the global level between that faraway place and the immigrants' homeland and hostland. So it's a place that is beyond the immigrant sending and receiving countries, but nonetheless have meaning in both how immigrants locate themselves in a global and hostland sociopolitical hierarchy and how others around the immigrants perceive 
immigrants using that lens. So an example that I give in my book is uh, the example of Nigeria. 50% of the population in Nigeria is Muslim. My participants who are South Asian Muslim Americans from Bangladesh, India, and Pakistan really had very vague ideas, if at all, about Nigeria. All, they didn't know what it looked like on the world map. They didn't know the demographic details. Uh, all they knew was that it is somewhere in Africa. But Nigeria became relevant to their lives uh, because of Boko Haram, the Islamist uh, group that uh, exploded uh, in the political and popular discourse when it kidnapped 300 Muslim schoolgirls. And even though Boko Haram was active uh, you know, since 2002 to the 2004, it only became known in the United States because of Michelle Obama uh, uh, not even launching, but publicizing this campaign to bring back our girls. And it is, the, it is at that point that for my participants, this faraway foreign place, Nigeria became very relevant to both how they felt as Muslims in the global space, as well as how others in the United States viewed Muslims. So one of my participants, such as um, Zinat, who I talk about in the book, she's a hijabi Bangladeshi woman. According to her, Boko Haram gives Islam and Muslims a bad name, and it shapes how Muslims as a whole are perceived in America. Zinat, uh, through my conversations I found, did not know wh where Nigeria is exactly located, its shape on the world map, its demographic profile, but she has learned from American uh, news channels and social media that Boko Haram is located inside Nigeria. And she understood that what it was doing there can affect her here in America. So I use this example to show how an irrelevant case becomes relevant if events in that faraway foreign place draws the hostland's political and media attention in a way that makes the immigrants' already stigmatized identity, in this case Muslim, even more suspect and vulnerable. So I argue that a place is an elsewhere if the answer is yes to the following questions. Do contexts in a place located beyond the homeland and hostland shape how immigrants view themselves, their sense of self, or and do those contexts shape how others in the hostland view these immigrants. And so the rest of the book, you do a deep dive really of like one particular diaspora community in the American context, um, the South Asian community or Desi community, um, mainly Indians, Pakistani and Bangladeshi. Um, and you kind of work as you guide us through unpacking the complexity and the nuances of elsewhere, because you show us that elsewhere itself is not monolithic, but there's actually, you know, kind of tears of it. And, and they have moments of shock and moments of kind of different saliences. So before we get to these examples, I wonder if you could share some, you know, your methodological process. You did um, ethnographic work in L.A. Um, how was this like? Um, how was it doing ethnographic work within the South Asian community or in the Bangladeshi community, especially um, on campuses as being an insider of the community yourself? Were there any challenges with that process? Were there any kind of um, 
successes or fun moments in the field? Um, well, that that is a great question because I have had a lot of fun, but also a lot of uh, tension, let's say. Yeah. So uh, I am Bangladeshi, but I wasn't, uh, I'm, I'm not originally from Los Angeles. So in many ways, while I was perceived as an insider based on, you know, my accent, my last name, um, the way I look, that, okay, this is a brown person from, from South Asia. And once they say that I am Bangladeshi, people know that I'm Bangladeshi. But at the same time, I wasn't, um, I wasn't an insider of the community. So when I started uh, volunteering at a Bangladeshi language school, um, this, uh, when I started making connections with uh, South Asian um, undergraduate students, uh, various cultural associations, I got the sense that people already knew each other. Uh, for to just give one example, when I uh, first contacted the Muslim Students Association, um, I learned that the South Asian Muslims there already knew each other from either their local mosques or from other cultural associations or their parents knew each other. So they already had an idea about the kind of community that they would expect um, coming into uh, the college campus. So in many ways, I was also an outsider because they didn't know my parents. They didn't know who I was. So uh, that kind of insider but outsider dynamic really helped me methodologically. Uh, I did ethnographic observations, in-depth interviews, and um, analysis of social media activities of South Asian Muslim Americans, but the fun thing is I didn't start off with doing all three uh, kinds of analysis. I first just started spending time with my community members and having conversations with them, just establishing trust, and then asking them if they knew anybody who would be interested to help me with my research. Um, so I did my ethnographic field work for three years but after, uh, I would say after a year and a half, after I felt that I did know a number of people in the community, I was hanging out with a group of girls who went to the same college. They were all Bangladeshi, but very much uh, embedded in the in a pan-ethnic South Asian community. They had a number of very close Indian and Pakistani uh, friends as well. So through them, I also made connections with other uh, South Asian uh, um, ethnic communities. But I, I spent this whole day with these girls. I felt like, yes, I, I understand wh where they're coming from, uh, what really matters for their lives. And then next the next day, I spent time with them again, and they're talking about things that I have no idea about. So and so said this, did you hear that? And I was like, I spent the whole day with these girls. What happened? How do I not know these things? And I realized, <laughs> I realized they were talking to each other on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. Clearly, I was missing out an entire picture that w was very relevant to this 1.5 second generation immigrant cohort. Um, so that's when I realized that, no, I have to systematically uh, 
collect data on what they are saying, what, what they're commenting on, what they're posting, what issues they're engaging with. And that's when I started incorporating, folding in the, the social media analysis. Uh, so going back to the insider outsider, so clearly that's an example of me being an outsider in that community. I really didn't know that, you know, that that's a major way uh, in which these people are communicating. But I also felt that when I first asked some of the interviewees uh, questions, they seemed very aloof or, uh, you know, disinterested about really talking about um, things that I know from the literature matter to Muslim Americans. They would say like, I don't know, or, uh, you know, I haven't really thought about it. Uh, oh, those things don't really matter to me. And uh, I, I was a little confused, uh, but then as I started spending time with them, I saw that their Muslim identities did matter in their day-to-day -day lives. Um, if I asked them during an interview, for instance, can you walk me through your daily life? They would just tell me, oh, I go to classes, I, I hang out with my, uh, with my friends uh, in the dorm rooms, or you know, I have a really great roommate that I spend time with, uh, you know, I try to eat at home. You know, things that you would hear from anybody. Uh, going to college, but once I started spending time with them, I saw that they really, some of them really took care about uh, their clothing so that they don't have to change their clothes if they wanted to go for prayers in between classes. Um, they wanted to eat halal food, so they asked their parents to, you know, help them with, you know, bring them food in the Tupperwares so that they don't have to spend extra money seeking out halal food. Or they would spend a lot of time with their roommates and their friends, but the way that they met their roommates, the way that they made friendships uh, was based on connections from, that they had made outside of campus from mosques or through their parents who connected them to other um, South Asian Muslim families. So that that insider outsider dynamic helped me to really see how these people interact with people that they perceive as outsiders, don't really trust, and how what inside everyday life reveals to people once they are included in the inner circle. Um, that wasn't always easy for me because of my gender. Um, I was seen as an unmarried young girl, um, and it, on one hand, made it easier for me to make connection with other girls, other women, but at the same time, it also introduced uh, a kind of uh, distance uh, for me to make uh, friendships or uh, a, a trusting relationship with Muslim men. And a number of uh, religious spaces that I encountered, such as a local prayer space within the Bangladeshi ethnic community, I found had uh, didn't have accommodations to include women. So those those spaces were off limits for me just because of my positionality. 
Um, other another thing that I observed was, um, you know, a lot of people told me because they thought that this is what I wanted to hear, uh, how religious they were, that they prayed five times a day and they fasted. Well, I after I spent a lot of time with them, almost the whole day, I saw that the prayer times came and went, and they didn't really go off and um, you know went off to do their prayers. So. It was a lot of fun uh, embedding myself in these people's lives, but uh, in there were moments when I felt I was an insider and there were moments when I clearly felt like an outsider. But I think uh, something that adds to the strength of ethnography is that all these different kinds of moments where um, great access to data. And I think, we you know, one of the things I appreciate about, about the book is the way that you've woven in the narratives, right? I think it just, it's, it feels so seamless when you're reading it and you get the sense of the, um, your, you know, your interlocutors um, as much as your voice, as much as kind of the theoretical work that you're trying to do. And so the w way that it's all brought in together um, I thought was really well done. So I'm really appreciative of that. Um, I wonder if we could talk talk about then some of the, the experiences you had in terms of what the students were saying and their conceptions of elsewhere, um, how they themselves were locating um, their kind of identities that were really like tethered to like sometimes ethnicity, sometimes nationality, uh, religion often, but like the religion sometimes like, you know, being Muslim superseded ethnicity at times, superseded nationality at times. So like, this is like a, the really messy part and enjoyable part of some of the data that you, uh, you are presenting us. Um, and I wonder if you could go to the discussion of elsewhere and the ways in which some of your interlocutors responded to, let's say, the Syrian refugee crisis versus um, the Rohingya crisis and, and South Asia itself, right? And so, like, we're talking to you're talking to South Asians, um, and they're having these very different responses to these two, you know, global events. And I think that is one of the main points you're trying to make about elsewhere. Um, so I wonder if you could unpack that for us. Thank you. Um, one of the fun things that I found after doing my field work is as a sociologist, um, as a researcher, I saw how elsewhere was a meaningful point in my participants' lives, uh, as well as how others perceived my participants at different moments of time. But my participants were not aware of this connection or actively aware, actively cognizant about this connection. They didn't use elsewhere, the word elsewhere, to describe their lives or their location in their worldview. Uh, but that doesn't mean that it is not relevant or meaningful for their lives. For example, uh, I use two concurrent uh, refugee crises to make this uh, point. There was uh, the, the Syrian refugee crisis that uh, grabbed the world's attention very um, heartbreakingly uh, when uh, the picture of um, Ilan was uh, flashed across newspapers all over the world. 
But at the same time, there was another refugee crisis ongoing, and that was the Rohingya refugee crisis. And the second crisis, the Rohingya refugee crisis, was actually in the immigrants' homelands. It involved directly Bangladesh and uh, other, other South Asian and Southeast Asian countries. When I was doing field work, I saw, so let me backtrack a little bit. I strategically decided not to observe participants, interview participants in activist organizations, political organizations, because I felt that I would then be sampling on the dependent variable. In other words, interviewing people I know are already exposed to uh, that kind of uh, thinking and exposed to that kind of news of global events. So I uh, intentionally wanted to study uh, people in spaces that were apolitical, you know, trying to look at everyday conceptions of these, um, of these events and places. And what I saw is that even in family spaces, uh, apolitical uh, hangouts like dorm rooms or just cultural associations or, you know, hangouts among friends in some people's houses, people brought up the Syrian refugee crisis. They were donating money. They were following the world news. They were looking at social media trends. They felt emotionally uh, invested. Uh, they were talking about collecting money in their mosques to make donations collectively, but they never brought up the Rohingya refugee crisis, even though it was happening, it was unfolding in Bangladesh. Uh, and when I asked my interviewees uh, about what their thoughts were about the Rohingya refugee crisis, uh, they had, most of my participants had no idea that this is happening. Uh, the one or two that made some, you know, passing comments had to do mostly with uh, the, uh, you know, their reading of the corruption uh, of Bangladeshi politicians and ineffective policies, but not really that I didn't really see that emotional attachment, even though these were also Muslims, these were also their compatriots. Uh, ethnicity wise so it was surprising it was a surprising finding that even that you would assume that as immigrants their primary ties even in the second generation that they would be more involved with the their ancestral homeland but it wasn't the case at all they were more invested in a country that they have never visited that they have very vague ideas about in every sense of the word and elsewhere and I argue that this is because as South Asian nationals uh, in the United States, they were in a geopolitical, sociopolitical hierarchy where it mattered more what happened in faraway Middle East than what was happening back in the homeland. So their nationality matters here because they would much rather focus on what happened far away than look back in their homeland where, uh, you know, you dig a little deeper and then you unearth a number of inter-ethnic South Asian conflicts that between Bangladesh and Pakistan, Pakistan and India. Uh, it's much 
easier to focus on what's going on far away with no direct uh, impact on your ethnic identity. But at the same time, that far, what is going on in that faraway place is more consequential about how others, your peers, non-immigrant peers, non-Muslim peers around you are perceiving you. And this this came up again as you were talking about um, during you know the uh, presidential election in 2016 and Bernie Sanders's candidacy and the role that um, the Palestinian plight played again right for. Um, your interlocutors who found more of an affinity to that cause, again, versus what was happening in um, the South Asian context or even the South Asian diaspora context of Indians supporting Trump, right? Like there was just kind of this fascinating move um, that um, the Middle East, quote unquote, however we define the Middle East and kind of the the global Muslim identity seemed to be more superseding of, than the ethnic, like localized ethnic identity. Yes. So uh, when, uh, especially the younger South Asian Muslim participants really supported Bernie Sanders, expressed their support uh, on social media very explicitly, and their support stemmed from um, his foreign policy views towards uh, Palestine. What indicated what that indicated to my participants was that if he is sympathetic uh, about Muslims elsewhere, he will also be sympathetic to Muslim issues here in the United States where they live. Uh, at the same time, they used uh, an umatic uh, logic towards feeling invested in the Palestinian uh, issue. Uh, For example, they uh, wanted the world's recognition that the Palestinians were were, uh, oppressed or marginalized. Um, They used the same omatic logic about uh, divesting from Turkey because it did not recognize the Armenian genocide because they felt that, well, if you, as Muslims, if we are to uh, resist injustice here, we also have to resist injustice there, regardless of, uh, you know, whether it is considered a a quote-unquote Muslim issue or not. But when I asked them that, you know, that's great that you you are, uh, you think that you should divest from Turkey um, because of its denial of the Armenian genocide, well, uh, Pakistan, which is your homeland, also denies and has not yet officially apologized for the genocide that it conducted in Bangladesh, uh, you know, just uh, just over three decades ago. Um, And some of them were not even aware that uh, this this genocide had happened. Uh, they had very vague ideas about uh, that part of their history. And uh, I think what that shows is there is a limit to that uh, global religious identity or that global Muslim space. Because Pakistan was not just their homeland, it also involved Muslims but they were not cognizant about that connection. So this is a space where I think that 
you know, ethnicity, borders, um, you know, nationality uh, matters because it's much more relevant to them to respond to faraway foreign places rather than respond to conflicts that are happening in their backyard because then that would be that would make their lives more difficult in the diaspora that would mean that they have to engage in direct conflict or direct arguments and debates with their uh their friends and which is so fascinating because then the flip side to this is what you highlight that in instances of hostland events like islamophobic like um events um, and anti-Muslim violence, then the South Asian kind of your participants are also s- stuck in that moment as well, right? Um, um, and I think this is also compounded by the fact that there's events in the elsewhere context. So something's happening in Europe, which they have physically no ties to, but beyond the fact that, um, you know, um, the Charlie Hebdo event happened or an ISIS attack happened in Germany or in Paris, then their identities in the context of America is also impacted because they are Muslims, right? And so this is another dimension of the elsewhere that you you bring in, which I thought was so important. Yes, exactly. So this is not a two-way street. On one hand, uh, immigrants self-identify with different elsewheres. Uh, on the other hand, they are identified by others in relation to elsewhere. And despite the salience of the Middle East and how these immigrants self-identify, I argue that is actually the Muslim-related instances in Europe that determine how these immigrants are perceived by others in America. So, for example, when um, I traced the response from my participants and the hostland to six ISIS attacks, two in the United States, two in the Middle East, and two in Europe, and what I found is uh, when uh, attacks uh, ISIS attacks in Brussels uh, and Paris happened. Uh, my participants did not feel connected to the Muslims there. They were very aggrieved that they they now have to uh, be vocal um, about uh, their religious identities. That you know they do not identify with violence. They do not identify with those Islamists who conducted these attacks. Um, at the same time, they did not feel a sense of umatic connection with the Muslims in those places, or a sense of diasporic affinity that you know there are my you know that that is uh, the home of my Bangladeshi compatriots. No, they they wanted to distance them themselves from that entirely, uh, but they were pulled. They were associated with. Uh, that elsewhere place, in this case France, by how other people associated them with uh, the perpetrators of those attacks. They became connected to Paris, even though they didn't want to. So I show that example, I mean, I use that example to show that uh, even as immigrants themselves connect them to certain elsewheres, they are also connected by others to different elsewheres, uh, even though they even though they may not feel connected to those places in the first place. And this is so fascinating. I mean, and a lot of this you also were mapping on social media, which I thought was so interesting, like on Facebook and Twitter. 
Um, so what role do you think then social media has? Like we're talking about diasporic identities and now we're unsettling kind of the homeland hostland, but now there's also like the cyberland that's adding to kind of this globalized, you know, identity. So what, what role do you think social media and the internet has in formulating these complex identities? I think that the social media, uh, is a very important component in how global political events get filtered down to everyday life, not just for the immigrants, but also for those around immigrants. Uh, social media exposes uh, people to events that are far away. In one sense, it is uh, an equalizer. Anyone can log on to Facebook and post what is happening, uh, you know, in their in their uh, neighborhood, in their country. So I think that social media exposes people to a number of potential elsewhere. Uh, it also breaks down uh, these complex global issues to very digestible pieces, uh, a few phrases, a few words. Uh, it also helps to trend certain issues over others uh, that make certain things relevant to people just based on the context that they are in. So I think that social media is helps to facilitate the interconnectedness of our globalized world in this time and era. But I also, uh, I also wonder if um, social media makes certain things more shocking than they are. I don't think, you know, I haven't done a, uh, I haven't done this study, but I don't think the social media makes certain events more shocking than others because uh, there have been attacks by, uh, you know, by Muslims against other Muslims. Those things have not trended on social media. I haven't seen, uh, you know, Muslims themselves using that space to highlight those issues. Uh, but I have seen a number of uh, events during my field work that trended, that, that was seen as more relevant to my participants because of social media, just so they know what is happening. And if someone asks them about their perspective as Muslims, they know how to respond. And yeah, this this is obvious when, you know, the Beirut event attacks, which was just before I think the Paris attacks didn't get as much attention or what happened in in Istanbul with at the airport also didn't get. So there was kind of a hierarchy of which events got traction on social media and news media generally, and how your your participants were also responding to that. But you're also highlighting that there's a generational factor, right? Because you also interviewed some folks who were the immigrants and then the ones who are the 1.5 or the second generation. And you found that there were differences in terms of how they um related to the elsewhere, right? Like maybe the initial, the parents were, had more of a sense or connection or affinity to South Asia versus um, the the students or the, the children maybe did not, had more of a sense of like the Middle East as the elsewhere. Yes. So one thing I would say about social media, because I think it is related to uh, your question about the intergenerational differences, is that 
social media is a great space to look at how immigrants present themselves as quote unquote good Muslims, citizens of the United States who are also uh, members of the global community of Muslims or Ummah. Because Facebook, for instance, you can actually uh, craft your narrative, you know, post a status and even uh, control who gets to see those, uh, those posts. So this is a space that I saw my participants use to try to carve their own narrative, control how they want to be perceived. And I have seen that uh, effort to perceive, to present themselves as individually good Muslims, uh, collectively show that they are Muslims and Americans. And social media is definitely a space that is used most by the younger generation, 1.5 and second generation South Asian Muslim Americans. Um, sometimes to distance themselves from elsewhere events and sometimes to associate themselves to elsewhere contexts. Uh, I did not find this as much with the, with the first generation uh, participants, but that, does, but that does not mean that these immigrants uh, did not uh, feel or associate themselves to the elsewhere effect because they were also, they are also living in the United States. They are also part of this geopolitical global context that makes certain places relevant to their lives than uh, certain other places that are left as just anywhere. Um, so the first generation was quite reluctant or hesitant, I would say, to be on the record talking about their religious uh, worldviews, their opinion, their political opinions, um, and they were more hesitant to associate their organizations, for instance, to Middle East um, issues. Uh, for example, um, a, a Bangladeshi charity organization that I uh, uh, that I visited um, were very reluctant to sponsor any issue that had any connection to the Middle East because they felt that having that connection would um, uh, make them more vulnerable to the punitive uh, surveillance measures of the state. But that does not mean that they, they did not feel a connection to the Middle East. Um, you know, their worldview as Muslims was very much colored by elsewhere Middle Eastern places such as Saudi Arabia, Palestine, Iran. Um, but for the second generation, they were actually very vocal about what they felt um, that they should speak about as Muslims. They did not have that uh, perception that speaking out as Muslims would make them any less American, that it would expose them to punitive measures. So. Uh, it, uh, both the first uh, generation and the children of immigrants, they were um, part of this global community of Muslims. They identified as, with uh, this global community of Muslims. They were associated by others to Muslims elsewhere. 
but how they responded was different. The first generation was uh, more hesitant to speak about these things, whereas the second generation and the 1.5 generation felt that it is by speaking out as Muslims that you become more Muslim American. Justine, I wonder if you could take a step back and reflect on the broader project and, um, you know, what would you want readers to take away as some of the main interventions, maybe either for migration studies, diaspora studies, or uh, folks like myself who think about um, Islam and, you know, Islam in America? Um, I think that my book extends the scholarship of international migration by showing by presenting a new analytical model for studying immigrant identity formation. I call it the multi-centered relational framework, which can encompass global politics in not just the immigrant sending and receiving countries, but also in those places beyond, the places that I conceptualize as elsewhere. I show in my book that places beyond the homeland and hostland are meaningful for not just immigrants, but also others. Immigrants self-identify with elsewhere, beyond the homeland and hostland, uh, and others also perceive immigrants in light of these elsewhere contexts. I think that, uh, especially now in when we are under when we are seeing the COVID-19 pandemic unfold, there is more evidence now why. If immigrants' experiences should be located in connection to contexts not just here and there, but also elsewhere. What happens in a faraway foreign land does not stop at its borders, but can produce domino effects that affect our daily lives here. So, I, I my book is my book presents a systematic analysis of how immigrants are located in connection to global politics in the homeland, hostland, and elsewhere. And it is only by um, looking at immigrants in such a globalized way that I think we can get a more accurate picture. Um, and I, I want to pick up on one final point that you mentioned in your conclusion. And this is really about like the applicability or generalizability of the conceptual framework that you've productively offered us to other case studies. Um, and one of the or two of the examples that you mentioned in your um, in your conclusion that you were kind of thinking about was like, can can this framework apply to non-immigrant groups like can this you know framework apply to um, african-american muslims in um african-american muslims or to um, latinos in in america and i know you were just beginning to think through that and i wonder if you could think through that with us here too of like what you think the applicability of this framework that you've given us is to other cases or do you think you know the whole time reading it i was really thinking like is this something that's really specific to you know the muslim diaspora context right and so i wonder what your thoughts on that is of course so uh, you mentioned two examples that i actually reflect on in the concluding chapter of the book i use the example of latinos to show that this is a racialized group that is non-muslim so does the elsewhere framework um, explain their experiences better in a globalized way, even though this population is not is not Muslim. And I show that uh, I show some examples that suggest to us that it 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 can show 
how elsewhere affect these this immigrant group. For example, even though they are non-Muslim, they are perceived as Muslim because of 9-11 and the subsequent um, changes in the immigration policies. Uh, it is not Muslims who were affected the most, it was, it was Latinos. They're the ones who are having uh, their surveillance measures encroach on their private lives into their homes. Um, I'm saying I'm not saying that this is not happening for Muslims, but they are the ones who are seen as uh, people we have to get, you know, keep out by building a wall. Um, so they are not from the Middle East. They are not from South Asia. They are not Muslims. But nonetheless, what happened in the Middle East has affected, uh, you know, for example, immigrants coming from Mexico to the United States. Uh, on, and then does the elsewhere uh, framework uh, help explain things that are happening outside of the United States? Well, let's look at South Asian Muslims in Canada. Uh, when 9-11 happened, when the ISIS uh, attacks happened in you know, San Bernardino, in France, uh, South Asian Muslims in Canada also felt that backlash, even though those attacks didn't happen in South Asia or Canada. It happened either in the United States or far away in Europe. But nonetheless, we know of ethnographic reports that uh, show that, you know, people, South Asian Muslims in their, were afraid, uh, feared a backlash in their local neighborhoods. So it, I understand that this is still a North American context. I have to do more research, uh, you know, as I go forward with this framework about how it travels to the global South, uh, whether, for instance, uh, Muslims in the Middle East are uh, perceive Muslims in South Asia or contexts that are happening in South Asia as an elsewhere. So I have to look at those examples, but so far, uh, using the examples of Latinos um, and South Asian uh, Muslim Canadians, I, I, I argue that there is something there that we need to we need to observe more. And uh, one uh, project that I have in mind is to look at whether elsewhere uh, is meaningful for um, African American Muslims. Um, that's because we know from the, the ethnographic literature on the Muslim community that there are tensions and conflicts between immigrant Muslims and uh, Black Muslims. Uh, whereas foreign policy issues and, you know, Muslims in faraway uh, Middle East is um, very meaningful to immigrant Muslims. For Black Muslims, it's their race, how they are seen as uh, not just stigmatized uh, religious group, but also as racialized, very racialized others as Blacks. So the way that they have navigated their religious identity is uh, more rooted in the racial dynamics in the United States than, um, than immigrant Muslims. So that is something that I want to explore deeper going forward. Yeah, I'm, I mean, you and 
just in the concluding chapter alone, there were so many things to think about and, and you've given us a lot to think about. So um, congratulations again on a, on a fantastic book. Um, as the last question, you've kind of alluded to already, but um, hopefully you're taking a break because the book just published and you're also teaching online as a lot of us are. But are there things that are kind of um, stewing in terms of projects that we can expect from you down the road or in the future? Um the next project that I, I have two projects that I'm very excited about. One is to do a retrospective analysis of uh, an immigrant group that we have thus far understood uh, as being located within the dyadic homeland Hosan paradigm. So I'm thinking of Irish Americans, but then using an elsewhere or a multi-centered relational framework to see what is what new insights using that lens actually reveals. So doing a retrospective project. Um, the other project that I'm interested in is looking at the effects of geopolitics on immigrant identity making in intimate spaces, uh, by which I mean, how do, uh, how do immigrants make friendships, romantic relationships, um, you know, relationships at work? How do, how do these, um uh interactions uh locate immigrants in a in a global space and uh conversely how do global politics really affect how who muslims marry uh who they go out with how they negotiate within their own community or how they negotiate navigate the interactions with their work colleagues with their friends so using that same framework, but in a more intimate setting. Oh, that sounds so exciting. Um, well, I look forward to your projects, and I'm so grateful that we had the opportunity to talk about your wonderful book, Here, There, and Elsewhere, The Making of Immigrant Identities in a Globalized World. Thank you so much, Tassine. Thank you. That was my conversation with Professor Tassin Shams about her new book, Here, There, and Elsewhere, The Making of an Immigrant Identities in a Globalized World by Stanford University Press, published in 2020. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. Thank you so much for joining us, and I hope to have you join us again next time. Take care and stay well.